0: House Call, an Infinity Strategies podcast, dives into issues central to healthcare, explores ways in which healthcare professionals are advancing medicine through research and improvements, as well as the impact of quality assurance standards. Episodes highlight how healthcare professionals and organizations are connecting with communities, including underserved and marginalized populations. These firsthand stories will unpack the rapid changes in the field and answer the question why we do what we do. Hopefully, these stories will inspire you to think differently about the healthcare system and take action. Affinity Strategies was born from a passion for healthcare advocacy. They are committed to representing healthcare clients, which include nonprofit professional healthcare associations, patient organizations, and healthcare stakeholders. Liz Schumacher, the founder and CEO of Affinity Strategies, as well as a lifelong kidney transplant patient, has coupled her professional commitment with her personal passion to advance the best medical research and patient care possible. Affinity Strategies works with clients who truly want a partner to help them advance and be the best they can be. They take pride in providing the best service and expertise with personalized customer service. Because Affinity Strategies only works with healthcare organizations, they speak their language. They consistently provide best practices models to clients to ensure that they are being the most zealous advocates possible. Hi, my name is Claire Vincent, and I am the host of House Call, an Affinity Strategies podcast. This is our inaugural episode entitled, We Can Do Better. If you'd like to hear about Affinity Strategies CEO and founder Liz Schumacher's journey to becoming a lifelong patient advocate, why it matters to be a mission-driven company, and what inspires her, you're listening to the right podcast. Liz and I dig into how Affinity Strategies helps their clients with change, how they pivoted at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic to become more effective and efficient, and how she evaluates success for her company. I hope you enjoy the We Can Do Better episode. There isn't anyone more appropriate to kick off our House Call podcast series than Liz Schumacher. Liz is CEO and founder of Affinity Strategies. She previously served as executive director for LUGPA, a national urology subspecialty association. She also served as senior legislative attorney for the American Medical Association, where she managed national healthcare insurance policy development and the Affordable Care Act rulemaking. Liz also worked for Pfizer, where she was engaged on key issues, including specialty tiers, access to medication, biologics, and Medicare. She started her career at the young age of 26 with the University of Wisconsin, where she was responsible for the third largest medical research budget in the United States. Liz's many prior speaking engagements include the American Association of Medicare Society Executives, the University of Wisconsin Law School, the Department of Health and Human Services, and several additional national and global organizations. She is a tireless, and fierce advocate for kidney and organ transplant patients. Liz, welcome to the show. Thank you. You're very, very welcome. We are so
1: (laughs) thrilled to have you today. Well, I'm thrilled to be here. Thanks for inviting me and thanks for doing this, Claire. I'm excited.
0: Me too. Me too. So say we've got a lot to talk about today. So we're going to go ahead and dive right in if that's okay with you. You got it. All right, so let's start off by talking about your company, Affinity Strategies. What was the impetus for founding it?
1: Sure. So, a little background on how we started this company. Um, I've worked. I had worked with medical associations since let me think 1998, in various capacities, doing government affairs and lobbying to policy development to strategic planning, all different sorts of things. But when I was at the American Medical Association, it, I noticed that sometimes when we would be working with a lot of our different members of the AMA Federation, which is like uh, different specialty societies and organizations who have memberships with the AMA, they, they didn't always have the budget to be able to pay for professional staff who could help support them and drive their mission and their strategy. So it just seemed to me like it was a void, a little bit of a donut hole out there that was an un, unmet need. So in response to that, um, I started a company, Affinity Strategies, in 2014, with the goal of doing medical organization and patient nonprofit organization, management, strategic planning, et cetera, not only doing kind of what some of my competitors would call you know, the back office work being in the office, you know, handling the memberships, handling the financials, et cetera, but also really driving forward strategic plans, bringing interesting ideas to my clients based upon other clients best practices, things like that. So doing all of the daily needs, but also adding an additional level of, I would say, style and substance strategy um, to help move them forward. And I just, to me, really felt like it was something that was really vitally important for a lot of these medical specialty organizations, because as medicine continues to change, it, it becomes more and more subspecialized, as we all know, the days of just seeing a primary care doctor who did everything really aren't the reality anymore. Um, you know, we now have groups that are super subspecialized to you know the point of we have one client who only does acid reflux and foregut issues. So you go from medicine to gastroenterology to surgery to subspecialization of that. So I just felt that there was a real need for a company like ours who understood some of those issues, understood medicine, and was able to work with those organizations on their really unique issues and be able to help move forward their agendas and the issues that are important to them and their patients.
0: So interesting. What a niche area that that you discovered a a vast need for. I'm I'm wondering, Liz, can you Tell us a little bit about how it is you even got interested in medicine in the first instance.
1: Sure. I guess I would say it it, kind of came at me from a lot of directions. When I was 12, I was diagnosed with acute glomerulonephritis. So by the time they found it, which is basically acute kidney disease, by the time they discovered it, most of my kidney function was already gone. So I was just, you know, uh, in junior high at the time normal kid, couldn't keep up with normal athletics. Like I normally would gymnastics, swimming, things like that. I was just getting really tired and my coloring started changing and my mom and dad took me to the doctor and said, you know, what's going on with her and nobody could figure it out. And finally they did a blood test and it was all right there in my blood. So at that point things changed pretty dramatically. And, um, so I've been living with kidney issues now for 38 years, um, my third kidney transplant. And so that obviously was the biggest driving factor living with these medical issues most of my life. But then um, my father was a hospital administrator for a small community nonprofit hospital. His mother was a nurse. My aunt was a nurse. My great aunt was a nurse. So I really was surrounded by a lot of medicine and healthcare since I was a young age. And really, I I can't imagine working in any other space, but with doctors and nurses and people who are direct medical providers, because I've grown up alongside of them. So even though I'm an attorney by training, I tend to be a lot more comfortable with medical people because I've been so surrounded by them since I was really little.
0: Yeah, that makes total sense. And I'm also curious, being that you are immersed in the medical field since such a young age, what made you pursue uh, law school instead of maybe a professional degree in
1: in medicine? It's a great question. Uh, From a young age, I like to write read. I grew up near the library in my little hometown of 3,200 people at that time. Now it is like 3,700. As a sick kid, I couldn't do a lot of normal things a lot of kids could do. So my dad and I would go for a walk like five nights a week. And on the way home, on the last stretch, we'd go to the library and check out a lot of books. So I just really grew up at that point, reading, writing, learning, um, because I couldn't really always do a lot of other things. So My parents just said to me, you know, you're a really good writer and why don't you go to law school someday? So I I would have loved to have done something in medicine, looking back as I was preparing for this interview, I thought, why, why didn't I do that? I think probably because at a younger age, I just didn't think I was very good at science. And I also think that looking back at high school, you know, I had medical issues going on until I was about a junior in high school. So I missed out on a lot of things normal kids learned. I didn't really realize There's some things I really missed out on education-wise growing up because I spent so much time in the hospital for so many years. So sometimes I'll be watching TV with my husband and we'll be watching some science program and he'll say something and he's a really intelligent person. And sometimes he'll explain something to me with science and I'll say, I didn't really even know that. And I think it's just because I missed out on a lot of things being sick growing up. So law school seemed like a natural fit. I was always an advocate. I knew that if I got a law degree, I would be able to have some kind of successful job at the end of the road um, and be able to provide for myself and be able to hopefully make enough money to have good health insurance. So those are really the driving forces where I'm, I have natural skills that match. A lot degree, I'll probably open a lot of doors and it'll give me some sense of security to be able to provide for myself. Yeah,
0: well, that's fantastic. That's fantastic. And to be able to, you know, at such a young age, begin to think about, you know, what your future was going to hold in terms of, um, you know, your education, that's pretty phenomenal that you were thinking about it back then. Kudos to you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So something else that I've been thinking a little bit about Liz is the opportunities that you have had over time in terms of becoming your own patient advocate. Could you talk to us a little bit about where that has shown up for you in your life and how you have then taken that experience and translated it into what
1: you do today for mm. other patients? Good question. I would say, I think it just comes naturally to me to be a patient advocate because I've had to be one for myself. So I definitely am the member in my family who, if somebody has a medical issue or Something seems a little, sounds a little bit weird to me, or um, I'm concerned about something. I'll be the first person to raise my hand and say, okay, let's get some additional recommendations on this and call in favors with um, my medical team. Or I work with doctors, of course, and pharmacists and nurses every day. So I'm sort of blessed that I have this whole circle around me of really smart people and every kind of medical specialty (laughs) imaginable. So First off, I would say like, as far as people, I really care about my family, my close friends, my employees, if somebody has a medical issue or somebody has something going on related to their healthcare, that seems kind of funky to me. I'll usually step up and say, you know, Hey, if you want, I'm happy to help you out. Or if you need a referral or, you know, how you doing? I try to be supportive in that regard. So I would say that's something that I regularly do. Certainly when my mom got cancer, I, I made sure we got her in very quickly with the head of the Cancer Center at University of Wisconsin. Currently with COVID, I've really, it's the first time in a long time I've really kind of gotten behind advocacy in a really visible way. I've been doing a lot of social media posts and videos and really DJ, who's on this call with us is one of my employees knows I'm always telling people to get vaccinated. And I'm very honest about my opinions regarding that. So it's just been something recently that I've really kind of taken on as a patient advocate and I've been pushing and using my voice to try and encourage people to get vaccinated. And to think of this as not just, you know, what it does to yourself, you know, what it does to your body. Okay. I don't feel good for a day or whatever the side effect is, but most importantly, I mean, it, it is, a virus is, you know, a living organism. So if people aren't vaccinated, you're giving the organism someplace to replicate. And it's not something we can control unless unless we control that happening. So I'm really trying to get out there and encourage people to just think about a big picture and the impact it has on our public health and really our future. Mm-hmm. It's not like the flu. It's something that we don't, we we've been studying for many years, but it's something that replicates very quickly and something that could get much worse if we don't control it better. So I'm really trying to use my patient voice to encourage people to not think of this as a political issue because it's not, it's a, it's a science issue.
0: Mm-hmm. And you kind of lending your own firsthand experience as being a patient and and trying to help people kind of understand the science behind it, I think is incredibly helpful. And I just want to thank you for continuing to put yourself out there, uh, especially during this time of, of, of another resurgence of the pandemic and, and really trying to help people understand the facts. So, so thank you for that, Liz. Appreciate it very much.
1: My pleasure. you. You know, I feel really blessed that I have a business, um, where I can be an advocate every day in my own way for my clients and their patients. And then personally, I can be an advocate for people around me who I care about. So, I feel pretty lucky that I have a job that allows me to do something I'm really passionate about. Good on you. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. Love it.
0: (laughs) So Liz, if we can, I'd like to kind of get back a little bit talking about more on affinity strategies. You know, when I, when I was doing some research about your organization, what rung through was that you are a very mission driven company.
1: Why is that important to you? Well, I think some of it is what I just talked about, obviously my personal story, but um, I think it's important, but kind of more universally, I think it's, it's important to try to be a mission driven company because that additional level of really caring about what you do matters. And from a business perspective and sales perspective, um, you know, when I'm talking to potential new clients about working with us, I think that our mission driven approach really shines through. So if you can do a, do something every day in your job that reflects what really drives you and matters to you, it's going to come through. And all of us have the ability to use our passion and whatever it might be to truly make a change in the world. My dad was a hospital administrator and always said to "You do something you enjoy every day in your career, because you spend a lot of time there with those people and doing that work. So to me, that was really kind of hit home. And I think if you're really good at something and you care about it, the money will follow. So I think to me being mission-driven means, you know, what we do isn't just work. It needs to mean something to us as well. So to me, that would, would kind of be my answer to that question is, and for anyone who is interested in going and starting their own business or thinking about what they want to do with the rest of their life, I think if you can do something that, really f- reflects a passion or something that matters to you, not only are you probably going to enjoy it more, but because you care about it, you're probably going to do a better job at it. You know, I've, I've had friends and family members who've said things like, you know, a job's a job, you know, just kind of check in, check out and get your retirement and blah, 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 blah. And I, I just can't imagine having that kind of a philosophy because, you only get one chance on this earth. So why would I want to spend that many hours of my life doing something that doesn't really matter to me? And I try to encourage that with other people. So that would be my answer on that question. Hopefully that made sense.
0: Yeah, it does. It does. And I'm wondering also from your client base, you know, what, what have they maybe said to you or maybe members of your team about the fact that you feel so strongly about your organization being mission driven?
1: Why has that made a difference to them? I can't speak for my employees, but I will say I'm very upfront and honest about my own medical issues, my kidney issues, why I care about what we do. It's not something that I hide. Um, it's not something that I think makes me weaker. I think it makes me stronger to be vulnerable, to talk about it, um, and to share with people, you know, what's going on, just like I would welcome anybody to do the same. So I think step one is just being comfortable, being vulnerable and talking about it. And then I think the feedback that I will get from clients and employees is that makes them feel comfortable to be able to talk about what's going on with them too. I will say, I think it really reflects and comes through with clients when I'm pitching new business, but also when they come on board. I think they can feel that we really care about them and we care about what they do. And I can't speak for all my team members, but I think all of them would say, you know, that is why we do what we do as a company but I I would say that our clients all can sense that. And when I pitch business, I'll often ask for feedback, whether I get the client or not. And and that often comes up as something that they really appreciated that we have the healthcare experience and that they can tell that we really care about what they do. Mm -hmm. Um, We can really speak their language because we only work with healthcare providers. So We hear a lot of the same sorts of things every day from our clients about right now, for example, what they're dealing with, with COVID, you know, what's going on, what kind of needs do they have? And I think about, and listen to what they're saying. And then I really communicate back with all of my clients that, hey, you're a nonprofit membership organization. Can you really give your members more benefits related to what they're facing right now? It's not just getting their annual continue education credits, but it's like, it's like being a place for them to share, to communicate with each other, um, to get current continual information on a regular basis on medical updates could be things like stress management, you know, how to deal with COVID being a healthcare provider. So I think that that level of caring and understanding of what they're going through really comes through and means a lot to them. So not only do they feel that we are a good, smart team who gets the job done, but we are also their advocates. Mm -hmm.
0: Seems, and and I I don't want to put words in your mouth, Liz, but it's almost like you are cultivating these little communities uh, amongst your associations and being mission-driven really helps support that type of community. Totally does. Absolutely. Awesome. That's awesome. So- Liz, tell me a little bit about the hurdles that maybe you faced when you set out to start your business and,
1: and how did you overcome those? It's a great question. You know, I would say as far as hurdles, I'll, I'll start with my husband. He certainly sacrificed a lot for me to start the business. It was, you know, giving up a, a full-time career with benefits and total security and, you know, guaranteed paycheck and guaranteed salary, increase, benefits and things like that was not something that really scared me. Uh, my parents were entrepreneurial and they always said, you know, take risks from a young age, like go for it, try it. If you can go build your own business and a niche, do it. So to me, it was something I really grew up with. For my husband, it was it was a change of thinking. So he was supportive and really patient. And that was certainly a hurdle. I would say um, a sacrifice maybe would be more of the word that he really had to make in order to allow me to realize my dreams. And I always believed that we would succeed. And I think he did too. So um, it's really awesome when we can reap the rewards and really see that everything turned out and is thriving after many years of hard work. So that was certainly a hurdle. I think also um, You know, a lot of people want to be entrepreneurs and talk about being entrepreneurs, et cetera, until you really stick your neck out and take the chance at being the employer rather than being employed. Um, It is a total shift. So, you know, that means risk, sacrifice, waking up in the middle of the night. When we started the business, I would go on Travelocity or whatever kayak and find the cheapest flights I could take to fly out to Washington, D.C. and all around the country to meet with clients, you know, it didn't really matter what time of day it left. If it saved me a hundred bucks, I'd do it. So it working on a really tight budget when we started, you know, the cheapest flights, you know, no more shopping, you know, a lot of things like shopping at Aldi, which I still do just because I think it's better value. But, you know, people would look at me like, you know, what the hell are you doing? What is this? We don't understand what you do. Like, what is this? And so it was, you know, a lot of hurdles in the beginning, certainly getting things started organized, those were, those were challenges, but luckily my husband and I both are comfortable, you know, living on a budget, both of us, neither of us had ridiculous expectations. So we, we were able to manage that and kind of knew that there was going to be light at the end of the tunnel. So that definitely was a hurdle in the beginning. I would say, I would also say though, that, you know, for some of the weird looks that I would get from people, I always knew there was a little bit of like a sense of, wow, you know, you go girl. Wow. I, I wish I would do that. You know, I wish I had the guts to do that. So I think because since I was a little kid, you know, I've was forced to be resilient and I thought the idea of providing a different type of association management service was a really good one. I just stuck with the resilience and persevered and the idea and just kept on going. And mm-hmm. So th- those are definitely some of the hurdles that we dealt with. You know, I think that I was thinking about this a little bit last night and I've done a lot of mindfulness training and things like that. And they say that the brain doesn't really develop till you're 25. And I think a business really doesn't develop until after you've gone through some hurdles. So everybody has to jump in and, you know, have those beginning years of being a young adult in your business, just like you are a young adult in, you know, real life. Uh, But once the business really kind of hits stride and fully develops, just like a person and you have your own culture and product and approach and, you know, style and value proposition, it really takes off. So I would say that even though there's been a lot of hurdles, it's definitely been the best experience of my life thus far. (sighs) What a great story. So
0: inspirational. What phase of life do you think
1: Affinity Strategies is in right now? I think COVID has been such a massive change agent for many reasons for the whole world. But I think it's been really interesting with my clients because association management and nonprofit management has been done in a very specific way for many years. And I think that COVID has really changed the whole arena in a, in a big way in mm. some good ways, actually, Mm -hmm. Um, really forcing organizations to be very careful with how they spend their money, to do things that, you know, give the most bang for the buck, I'll be honest, Um, to not just do things the same old, same old way of having like a big meeting and hoping people come and, you know, what we're seeing a lot of change with is you really have to be super relevant to your members. You have to be able to speak to the issues that are specifically of interest and importance to them. Sort of like what I talked about earlier with medical specialization, you have, a lot of my organizations are pivoting to using digital tools more. Many of them are actually starting to do podcasts. So what I'm pushing them to do is say, Hey, let's get more content to your members, meet them where they're at, instead of having them to come to us and let's do it more frequently and with more relevant information so that we're in front of them more we're showing them what matters we're there to help support them through the year all the time Mm -hmm.
0: and liz would you be able to share with us maybe a particular example of the way in which affinity strategies actually adapted with one of your associations to do something maybe completely different in a way maybe serving customer needs, maybe it's the way in which maybe you support um, some of the advocacy that they do. Could you maybe give us a specific example?
1: Sure. There's so many, um, but I would say our client Society of Infectious Disease Pharmacists started with us four years ago, and obviously they're in a really amazing space right now um, on the forefront of research and technology to treat people with COVID and um, antibiotic resistance and that whole space and and infectious disease. When they came on board with us, you know, they, they were really looking for ideas on ways they could partner with sponsorship sponsors in a different way. So I gave them a lot of ideas and said, what about doing a podcast series around specific topics of interest and working with sponsors and and companies who want to support you To maybe support a podcast series or to maybe do webinar programming or to do things that actually develop more programs and member benefits rather than just kind of coming to the annual meeting and having a booth. Why don't we leverage those partner relationships in a smart way to support the actual infrastructure of the organization and give them a voice, those partners, give them a little bit of a voice to work with the organization to like show what they're doing. What is the research that these companies are doing? What are the new medications? Without doing it in a sales or marketing kind of a way. And that's really taken off. Not only has it been an innovative new type of member offering, but it's been a totally new source of revenue for um, a lot of our clients. So I would say that would be one exciting example of what we've done. we've also pivoted to a lot of virtual meetings back in March, 2020, we pivoted to a virtual meeting in three weeks and we had a meeting that normally would have, it's a very super sub-specialized ear, nose and throat surgery organization, but their normal meeting in person would maybe have 80 people. It's just a real narrow specialty. Uh, we did a virtual meeting and they had over 900 people from around the globe. So wow. I think- Those are kind of examples of how when things, there's external factors going on that force you to change a little bit. You know, as my mom used to say, you can turn lemonade out of lemon. So that's been, I think those would be some good examples of things that I'm proud of that not only have generated more revenue for the clients, but have developed more member benefits and really helped some of these organizations frame themselves in a more contemporary, modern, valuable way to their members.
0: Yeah. Those are great examples, Liz. And we all know that as humans, we are oftentimes resistant to change. I would love to hear what you and your organization have done when you've maybe pitched these uh, new ideas to your organizations and they've been met with resistance. How have you helped
1: them kind of come along on on that journey with you? Great question. I think that every organization is a little different. So I'm very careful with the personalities of my leadership and the boards and what the members tell us they want and how I kind of present ideas to them. You know, I tell all of them here are best practices that we're seeing that are really working great. You know, I give examples like I just shared, but I've learned over the last seven years of owning the business that people have to come to some of this themselves as well. So I I can give them examples and ideas and show them how we've been able to do these things, case studies, examples, but the organization has to want to do that too. So I'm not somebody who's going to force it on anybody, but I'm just going to try to lead by showing them what others have done, show them the examples, let them talk to the other organization. Sometimes it is hard for some of our nonprofit organizations because they are volunteer boards. So they get a little nervous sometimes about the volume of work, et cetera. But I think a benefit of working with affinity strategies is because we have expertise in this, we can do a lot of that work for them. So we really try to always do highest and best use with our clients. And that means, um, you know, Dr. Jones doesn't have to do all of Work on this. We can just say, you know, hey, Dr. Jones, we've got this and this and this taken care of, but we really need you to weigh in on this and this and this so that we use their time the best that we can for their expertise.
0: That's awesome. It's like getting the right work in the right place, right? You're the experts in helping run their organization and you tap into the medical providers for their areas. So that sounds like a great partnership.
1: Totally. That's exactly what we do. Awesome.
0: Okay. So And you've been speaking a lot about the variety of subspecialties within the medical field. I am wondering how Affinity Strategies services such a wide variety of organizations that cut across so many medical fields. Like, how do you and your teams stay up to speed and, and connect with so many different sectors?
1: We are always sort of changing, you know, I think one of the, the fun things about having a business kind of like ours is that we constantly have to be sort of nimble. And I think we'll continue to be that way in thinking about like, what have we learned from other groups? So we don't need to know about all the research medicine of what they do, but we can build our skills in other areas because we only work in this space in healthcare. So I think there's a lot to be said for our company in that unlike some of our competitors, who might represent, you know, banking associations, car wash associations and neuroscientists. nothing wrong with that, but all we represent are the neuroscientists and the neuro, you know surgeons and the neurophysiological experts. And you know, we have bone and joint, we have infectious disease, we have pharmacists, we have, ear, nose and throat, we have children's prosthetic experts, we have, you know, a whole slew of different specialty organizations. So first of all, we can speak their language, because they're all serving patients. So all of our groups have some similarities in that most of these members got into medicine, because they want to help people and they care about patients. And we understand that. And that certainly plays out in their personalities and things that matter to them. It also plays out in their schedules. Sometimes, you know, we have a lot of night and weekend calls with our clients because they're with patients in the day. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we understand their schedules. We understand their personalities. We understand the environment they're all working in. There's a lot of commonalities amongst our members and what they do every day as healthcare professionals, not as um, what their specialty is necessarily sometimes that too, but really in like the major themes, they're all dealing with COVID. They're all dealing with new demands as healthcare providers within their institutions. Um, They're all dealing with new challenges as clinic owners, you know, if they're in private practice. So there's a lot of commonalities in what our members and our leadership are facing. And when those are the people that we work with every day, we get to understand some of that common language and we can be better advocates for them and understand them a little bit better. And I think that really brings a benefit. I'd also say that we can have a better sense of some of the overarching themes of what's going on. Let's say there's less sponsorship funding You know, during COVID. Sponsorship funding for some of our organizations was a little more limited because nobody knew what the interaction would be like with members at a live meeting versus a virtual event. So we would be able to really provide reassurance to a lot of our clients on themes that we would see with external partners and give them suggestions for new ways to engage with them. Mm -hmm. So those sorts of themes, I think are really important because we understand the environment and the business a little bit better than some of our competitors probably do.
0: Yeah. It sounds like you carving out your own specialty has been really uh, fruitful in terms of being able to serve the specialty organizations. Did you ever consider diversifying
1: like some of your competitors have? Did you consider branching out? I've had people suggest it and sometimes I get RSPs. Um, I got one from a marketing organization recently, but I don't really consider any of them seriously, nor have I ever. I love my team, but at the end of the day, I have to set a certain theme with the company. And that is what I know is medicine and healthcare. And what I care about is medical research and patient care. And I own the company. So trying to represent a business or an audience that I don't really understand, or I'm not as passionate about, I don't think I would be able to do as good of a job at, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So at least for me, my place in this world has been to just focus in on the healthcare because it's what I'm passionate about. It's what I know about. And then carefully bring on team members and staff members who really fit within the culture and the needs of our company. And, you know, things I look for are people who are empathetic, people who are team players, good sense of humor, people are willing to roll up their sleeves and help each other out. You leave your ego at the door there's no kind of like, you know, I have a team behind me to support me. It's, we are a team all together on the same playing field. You know, I try to provide a lot of autonomy to my team members to run with doing things and really come up with creative solutions and ideas, but I have no problem interjecting when I can provide more guidance or feedback on something they may not understand. And I do have high expectations of, of excellence when it comes to the importance of what our clients do and following through on things and making sure that we're doing everything we possibly can to help them succeed.
0: Well, it sounds like you also work really hard on making your company a place where your employees can thrive. And, you know, considering I have spent the better part of my own professional career working um, in human resources, I, you know, I love to hear, I love to hear about those efforts. So, Let's switch we gears. Dry. We try. We try. And that's. It, it sounds like you definitely are doing what you can, <laughs> which is fabulous. It's fabulous. So if we may, let's switch gears a little bit. I recently read an article in Fast Company, and the publication shows a number of business people as the most creative of 2021. And I just would like to read a quote from one of the honorees. Her name is Katie Porter. She is a sitting member of the California House of Representatives. And her quote really resonated with me. And it goes like this. She said, quote, I have a lot of tolerance for disagreement, for criticism. What I don't have a lot of tolerance for is just BS, end quote. (laughs) What do you think of Porter's statement?
1: I think that really good criticism is really important in order to continue to grow and thrive and get better. But, you know, as far as BS goes, um, <laughs> I don't I don't really listen to what if I think something's BS and it isn't really adding value, I just kind of I let people I hear it out and listen and I try to find value in anything anybody has to say when it comes to feedback, disagreement, et cetera. But at the end of the day, I know what my, what my values are and I know what has worked for me. Um, but I do enjoy any kind of feedback, any kind of information, and I don't see it as a bad or a good thing. I just sort of listen to it and think, oh, that's really good suggestion. Let's do that. Oh, that's great feedback. Oh, I wasn't aware that was something that we were doing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That's a really great idea of something we could do. But if something is just kind of BS and complaining and not adding value or driving things forward, I have no problem just letting it go and saying, okay, you know, I hear you. I understand, but I'm just going to kind of let that go. I also think in the business, you know, through the years, sometimes you'll have people that you work with, whether they're coworkers or clients who might say things like, you know, I've been doing this a long time and I know this and this and this, and that's all great. I think there's something to be learned from everybody and anybody, but at the same time, I think that if something, again, if something doesn't really add value or isn't coming from a place of authenticity, I'm not necessarily going to listen to it. I'm going to listen to it, but I may not adapt it and, and use it to change and grow the business. Mm-hmm. So hopefully that kind of answers it. Um, the other thing in the quote too, that I thought was interesting as far as creativity, I could speak to that a little bit too, is I, I firmly believe that there's room for creativity in any business. Being an entrepreneur is a really creative thing. In my opinion, I grew up with a family of artists, so I love The creative aspect and trying new things, things like doing this podcast to me is like super creative, cool thing. It's just fun to try new things. Like it doesn't hurt to try new approaches, um, new ideas, getting back to the criticism and feedback, suggestions and things like that, trying things out. If something doesn't work, it doesn't work. So you try it. If it fails, it fails and you keep on going. What did you learn from it? Maybe you won't do it again just keep on trying new ideas, just keep getting up and keep going. So I think that's been really um, an important thing in the success of our business has been trying new things and not being afraid to say, Hey, how about this idea? When you can be looking at a whole boardroom of people saying, wow, that's really different, but I kind of like it. Mm-hmm. Um, so okay. I would say, you know, as far as clients go and employees, I much prefer to work with people who are willing to try those things and are willing to embrace change. And those who want to do things the way that they've always been done, I think there's a lot to be learned. But I just think that our society is changing so quickly with technology and medicine. And there's so much going on that if we don't adapt to change quickly and learn from it and keep moving and keep adapting, we're going to be left behind, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and in turn, I would
0: imagine your associations will be left behind.
1: Hundred percent, right? Right. Yep. hundred percent.
0: You know, just staying on this uh, Katie Porter quote just a bit longer here. Have you ever found yourself where you know you're you're in the process of kind of cutting through the BS that uh, maybe one of your clients is sending your way, and you're thinking about you know your best response. Do you ever choose an avenue to sort of reflect it back to them to help them understand that it's BS and how do you do that?
1: <laughs> oh, um, I think sometimes the example that keeps coming to my mind is if we have a client who it was always done it this way, or they see competitive, a competitor organization, you know, let's say we're the society of table lamps and the society society of floor lamps is doing it this way. So we're really similar, but we're a little different. Um, (laughs) And, you know, the table lamp group has a lot more money and more members and they're considered, you know, more important. And we're just a table lamp group and we don't have as much membership and funding and people don't know who we are and they don't recognize us. Sometimes the table lamp group might say, well, we want to do everything that the floor lamp group wants to do. And I'll say, Mm -hmm why do we want to do that? Why do we want to be like somebody else? Like what's unique about us? Why don't we focus in on what's authentic to us? Like focus on what matters the most for table lamps, focus the most on what makes you unique instead of trying to be like everybody else, like focus in on what is really unique about you and try some new things. Don't just to sort of assume that um, because you know the floor lamp organization is you know all over the internet and has this many members blah 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 that they're better than you you know it's the same as um the business you know um when i was going through a growing phase about a year ago i was pitching some really large organizations and i kept coming in second and i was like what are we doing wrong and mm. These groups would come to me, and and one of them even started crying and said, We loved you guys, you're so great, we love your healthcare expertise. But they all went with a company that was significantly larger than me, like hundreds of employees versus our, you know, 12 at the time. And so I thought, you know, we're leaning into something important here, like the healthcare, the passion obviously is coming across, but we need to think a little bit more about how we market ourselves because we're never going to be, nor do I ever want this company to be hundreds of employees. So I took some classes. I took a Outthinker, got a Outthinker certified and took classes with scaling up. And it was great because I just thought we're leaning into our niche even more. We're going to lean into that even more. We're not going to try to do it like other people. And we're going to do what we do really, really, really well and keep focusing in on that and being authentic to that. And it has definitely helped us grow the business. So I recently bought a copy of Scaling Up for one of my clients who I just think she has the same philosophy and wants to grow her organization. And I said, let's read this and let's do a call once a month. And I'll help work with you in scaling the organization, just like I scale my business. So it's thinking about yourself in a different way and really like capitalizing on what you're really good at.
0: I like it. I like it. You know, you just kind of demonstrated that, you know, in response to the question I asked about, you know, reflecting BS back to them, you just demonstrated how creative you are in in doing that, which is really, really super awesome. So thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah, I try. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So Liz, how do you define success for affinity strategies?
1: Well, of course we have goals, you know, financial and deliverable goals each year. Um, I use a platform called Align where at the end of the year, I put together all of our goals and I post them, the company goals and the business into a platform that my team can see. And then we break it out by quarter in order to meet these overarching eight goals for affinity strategies this year. What kind of tactics do we need to reach each quarter? Whether that's X amount new business revenue each quarter, whether that's um, all of our employees taking professional development and training and being the best they can be and not just being the best they could be, but like staying fulfilled and satisfied professionally instead of sort of getting bored, making sure that they're developing and growing to, you know, technological improvements in the company, you know, by the end of the year, we're going to have a whole new IT system or something like that. So I lay all of those out in a line, which is a digital platform, and all of my employees can see it. And then each of them do goals at the beginning of the year that fit in with the overall business goals. And, you know, for example, Amy, who is our VP of membership and marketing, two of her goals would be to do marketing audits for each client and membership audits to get them suggestions on how to improve, whether the client decides to take that information and move forward with it. Is up to them, but we are being proactive and helping them. So, to me, those define success metrics. I mean, I think every business has to have. So, you don't just sort of like keep going and not have goals and have continual growth. Since we started the business in 2014, we've grown every year financially and added more staff every year. So, those kind of traditional metrics are certainly something we look at and think about in success. But I also think success is doing things like this, like doing podcasts and finding new ways of reaching people and not just serving our clients, but also like standing for something as a company. You know, some companies do things like sponsor walks and runs, things like that. You know, for my company, it's lately been doing the vaccine video campaign, which I think is something that's really important since we represent healthcare providers who are putting their lives on the line every day. So, That's another piece. I think success is also your culture. To me, that's probably the the biggest thing that matters to me as far as my team is the culture of the group that everyone works together. If they closed their eyes and they fell backwards, would somebody catch them? If somebody doesn't feel that way, I don't know if they're the best fit on our team, if they can't get to that point. I am confident that, you know, DJ, who's on this podcast with us right now, if I was outside and I fell backwards and DJ was standing there, he'd help pick me up. So you got to have that kind of trust in each other. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's something that is a real success metric for me. And I think that if something's wrong with the culture, I can smell it and it drives me crazy. And I try to figure out what I could do to make it better. Mm -hmm. And I'm not afraid to make tough decisions. If something affects the culture, it has to be done. Yeah, yeah. So I think to me, that's important, being staunchly protective of the culture of the organization, really important now in the virtual world. And meeting your metrics are really important. And then just continuing to evolve and grow and adapt in whatever business field you're in. Yeah,
0: I can totally relate to that. I believe it was um, the business scholar, Peter Drucker, who said culture eats strategy for breakfast. And, uh, I would imagine in a small organization such as yours, it's just so critical that you've got the right players on your team to make things happen. So congratulations to you for just being so conscientious of all of those things that need to be in balance in particular, you know, your culture. So awesome, awesome work. So Liz, we are winding down our subject matter expert questions here. The final one that I have for you is: What advice would you give to aspiring
1: entrepreneurs? Let's start by saying I think I always knew I was going to be an entrepreneur at some point in my life. My parents were entrepreneurs, and you know, from the moment I was in college, probably started earlier than this, I'd come home on holiday breaks so and I'd make hair scrunchies on my mom's sewing machine, go back and sell them in the dorms. So I think one of the things I'd say to aspiring entrepreneurs is like, whatever it is, if you've got that vibe, you've got that gene, you've got it. Even if you try to turn it off and work for somebody else at some point, you're going to need to do it. So it means that if you really want to do it, there's no time like the present. You know, I don't have any really regrets in my life, except I wish I would have started this when I was younger and jumped off a bridge and taken the risk of doing this. And I suppose the reason I didn't was because of my medical issues. And I was always nervous about having health insurance, but I think for aspiring entrepreneurs is just to do it and don't really care what other people think. Like just do it, follow what you think, surround yourself with some really good mentors who have been successful at this. Don't be afraid to reach out to people who, you know, are, if you're, you know, you're a young person and one of your parents' friends has a successful business and you think is a really successful entrepreneur, reach out and say, Hey, can I take you out for lunch? Like, I would just love to hear about this. Reach out to people who can help show you the way and teach you and start surrounding yourself with other like-minded people who get that kind of entrepreneurial side of you and can help support you and kind of hold you so that you can jump off and like, just do it. So to me, it's, You have to be bold. If you've got it, it's just, it's going to be like something you got to scratch. You got to just do it. So I think put together a business plan, follow your heart, uh, follow your gut. And the more you follow your gut, the more your gut is going to keep telling you what to do. So keep following that, keep doing it. I think most successful entrepreneurs read a lot and it's not just like management books. I have tons of management books, but I read a ton of magazines. I'm always reading things like current trends, what's going on. I read about art, literature, you know, fashion, food, whatever. So to me, it's like staying engaged and always looking for ways to turn on your creativity that might lead to some other ideas or inspire a way to be able to handle a problem differently. So I think looking for inspiration And staying creatively inspired is really important as an entrepreneur too, so that you're comfortably nimble and changing and looking for solutions in new, unique ways. So I think go for it, take the risk, stay stimulated, surround yourself with people who support your mission. Don't listen to the naysayers. Don't listen to, you know, the people who are trying to be super practical. If you've got a good idea and got a good gut about it, and you know what you're talking about and- you have some people who can help support you and be your, your cheerleaders. Like go for it. You may not be able to jump off, you know, the bridge entirely at once. Maybe you have to keep your other job and you know start working on your business plan and setting things up, you know, on weekends and at night. But that may just be what you need to do. And I think don't be afraid to put in the hard work. It's not something that is a nine to five job to start with. I'm fortunate after after about six years, I'm I am able to stop working at a, a reasonable time. Um, but I'm always thinking about the business. Another bit of advice I would say is, you know, I have notebooks everywhere next to my spot on the couch and my handbags and my office. You never knew when you were going to get an idea. So write down the idea. It doesn't matter if it's a train of thought or whatever it is, just write it down because it may be something that you might find really valuable the next day. That is excellent excellent
0: advice, Liz.
1: And thank you. Thank you for
0: sharing that. Appreciate it. My pleasure. All right. We are going to transition to our lightning round segment, and I am hoping you're ready for some rapid fire Q and (laughs) a. Yes. (laughs) All right. Let's do this. Describe yourself in three words,
1: um, creative, hardworking, bold, like it. (laughs) Favorite day of the week? Friday. I can take a break from the week and I can think about doing my hobbies over the weekend, which usually includes cooking for family and friends, trying new recipes, getting as much sleep as I need, um, playing with my dog and getting into nature.
0: Nice. It's my favorite day of the week as well. (laughs) And last song you downloaded.
1: Let's see. Um, Last song I downloaded was, well, it was an album. It was Led Zeppelin Coda. Nice. I like to rock. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm with you, sister. I do too.
0: Um, Would you rather be able to speak every
1: language in the world or be able to talk to animals? At this point in my life, talk to animals. I would love to be able to communicate with my bulldog, who's my baby, to be able to talk to her. Although I do think we already talk and look into each other's eyes and she paws at me and I, we speak our own language, but if I can actually talk to her, I would love it. Um, but I would say at age 15 to 35, it would have definitely been to speak as many languages. And would you want Britt to be able to talk <laughs> back to you? Yes, of course. Okay. All right. Well, <laughs> careful what you wish for, right? <sighs> It would be a lot of t- I'm tired. Yeah. Uh, Could I have some more water? I want an ice cube. Let me lick the yogurt container. Um, uh, why can't I jump up on the bed? I'm too old. I can't get up there. You know, why yes. can't I go for a walk? I know my legs aren't strong enough anymore. You know, <laughs> oh my gosh, hilarious. <laughs> Favorite junk food. Um, Although I do consider myself a good cook and I like to try a lot of interesting recipes. And I cook pretty healthy. I do like junk food. So um, I live a McDonald's cheeseburger, having kidney disease, my diet, my appetite changes. Like a lot of times I'm kind of nauseous, but I was just telling some coworkers yesterday, one of them who worked for McDonald's corporate for many years, you could put a McDonald's cheeseburger in front of me anytime. And I would eat it. Uh, McDonald's cheeseburger, small fry, and a large Diet Coke. Uh, I could eat that probably any day of the week and be very happy, even though I'm a Wisconsin girl. I love a Chicago dog as well, with a small fry. Mm-hmm. And sometimes when I'm coming home from Wisconsin, I go through Culver's to get myself an order of fried cheese curds and a root beer. Let's be three.
0: And now I'm hungry.
1: I know. All
0: right. Ask permission or forgiveness?
1: Ask permission. Um, I think I only ask for forgiveness if I did something wrong and I knew I was doing something wrong. So sometimes I make decisions and I don't always think about how they affect others. (laughs) I just do it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't always ask for forgiveness on that because if I didn't mean to do wrong, you know, and if I'm not hurting anybody and I thought I was doing the right thing, I'll stick by my guns.
0: All right. What's... The most boring thing
1: ever. Uninteresting people. (laughs) (laughs) Boring people. Oh, indeed. (laughs) Indeed. (laughs) How many
0: times did you sneeze in the last seven days? My husband says at least a hundred. That's a lot. I know, I didn't think it was that many. Oh my goodness.
1: What is the fastest you have ever driven a car? The fastest I've driven is my Audi A6 S series fast car. Um, Probably about 105 to 110, but uh, the fastest car I've ever driven was also an Audi. It was an S6 and on the Autobahn, I wasn't driving, but it was going about 180 miles.
0: Very good. (laughs) Very good. Driven by Karsten, I'm guessing.
1: It was driven by Karsten, Yes, <laughs> it was. I could feel my stomach going to the dropping in my, oh my body.
0: I bet. I also have driven on the Autobahn. Uh, however, I had two passengers that were not interested in me driving 180. So, <laughs> did not. I did not go that fast. However, I did go at about
1: mm, 130. Ooh, I so bet that felt good. good. What kind of oh. car was it? Was it a nice and fast? No.
0: That was the other problem. It was a, uh, it was an SUV of some kind. So, you know, you can't crank that thing up to 180 on the anywhere. <laughs>
1: you kind of need a sports car to really get the whole effect. Yeah,
0: that's right. <laughs> oh, good for you.
1: What is for dinner tonight? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know yet. Probably some kind of vegetable pasta lately. I've been making all these vegetable sauces like broccoli sauce and a zucchini sauce I've been making with Orchetti or something like that. We've been going more plant-based last night. I made shrimp tacos with avocado corn tortillas (sighs) and then um, cowboy beans, but tonight it'll probably be some kind of veggie pasta.
0: What time should I come over?
1: (laughs) Anytime. You're always welcome. (laughs) You too, DJ. (laughs) Thanks. Thanks. The more the merrier. (laughs) Dawn or dusk? Um, I think that Dawn is more beautiful, um, but I get my best ideas and, and I'm most relaxed at dusk. Very good. Is it wrong
0: for a vegetarian
1: to eat animal crackers? No. Cause
0: you're not eating animal. <laughs> you're not eating real animal. I know it's a <laughs> joke. It's a joke. It's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I do like the frosted, the frosted animal crackers are good. Me too. Me too. Um,
1: who do you admire? Margaret Mead. Mm, nice. <laughs> what are you currently reading? Well, I could say the, the politic answer and say, you know, um, think again <laughs> by Adam Grant and option B, Carol Sandberg, et cetera. And I, I have those uh-huh. all on my stack. but what I'm really reading every night is I bought Martha Stewart's, all of Martha Stewart's original books from the 80s, like, you know, her old house book and entertaining and her original gardening book, the stuff that my mom had. So I've been reading all of those old original Martha Stewart books, because um, we're moving into a new house that's that is going to have, I think it'll be the first house I've ever had where I can really do some of that kind of stuff. Like Mm -hmm. it's kind of a little estate. So Mm -hmm. Um, I'm learning about gardening and how to put in little herb, like little little fenced in, earth in the backyard and how to take care of old house stuff. And mm-hmm. so I'm starting to read those books. Um, and then just a lot of magazines, you know, House Beautiful and Domino and Food and Wine and and things like that. Mostly kind of cooking and home books nice. and, reading and magazines. Nice. You
0: mentioned that your mom had some of those same Martha Stewart books that you're reading now, is it giving you a little bit of a sense of the nostalgia as well?
1: Yeah. There's a little nostalgia for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. It's nice. It's fun looking at those books and thinking, Oh my God, my parents did this stuff. Yeah. Like, um, what, like this old house with Bob Vila. Well, there's new guys now, but doing the kind of stuff that like my parents used to watch on PBS, like Sean and I are doing now. So it's, <laughs> it's, um, it's kind of fun though. I'm ex- It's, it's exciting. It's fun to learn new stuff.
0: Good. Good. And here's the last one, Liz. What is your dream job? Of course, other than the one you currently have,
1: I would love to have a little restaurant that doesn't serve more than eight people a night. And if like a money were no object, and I got to just make whatever I wanted and everybody ate that. And it was just like a cool little, like a dining room, you know, like just a little dining room restaurant and eight people. And I would just make whatever I felt like making that day. That would be a blast and I could do it maybe four nights a week. I would love Mm -hmm. to do that. Mm -hmm. And I have no doubt you
0: would be wildly successful
1: and fantastic (laughs) at it. Thank you. I hope so. Yeah. Maybe someday.
0: Oh, well, I know you're a dreamer. So maybe so maybe someday, if anybody can make it happen, you surely can. Well, you too, Claire, my goodness. Oh, thanks. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Well, Liz, this has been a fantastic time. I can't tell you how wonderful it has been to hear your story, how what great advice that you've given, and and just really being able to talk about a whole host of current issues that you personally as well as your business have been tackling. So thank you, thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, before we let you go, just want to ask whether or not you may have any kind of final
1: thoughts for our listeners today. I guess it's a little bit cliche, but do more in life, what you enjoy, you know, follow your gut instinct on things that feel good. Um, Not what you think you're supposed to do, but what you know you're supposed to do. And success and enjoyment isn't always the things that you would think would be obvious. You know, for me at this point in my career, I love one of my favorite parts is, is the young people who work with me, seeing them grow, working with them, creating opportunities for them, being around their energy. So I think just kind of follow your instincts and lean in more to the things you really enjoy, because chances are you're probably going to do better and succeed more by following what makes you feel good than following things that do not make you feel good. So that would be my advice. That's great
0: advice as always. I wish you the best luck in your continued success and can't wait to see what's next for you and your company. Best wishes. Thank you,
1: Thank you guys. Have an awesome day.
0: What a great discussion. Liz provided so many nuggets of wisdom and inspiration. Admittedly, it is difficult to distill it into two to three learnings, but I'm going to go ahead and give it a shot. First, Liz's message of following your passion came through loud and clear. She also believes that part and parcel to following your passion is owning or being part of a mission-driven company. Liz shared that it is fulfilling, engaging, makes it easier to connect with clients, and fosters creativity. Second, Liz indicated that starting your own business can be challenging, but taking calculated risks, following a tight professional and personal budget, maintaining best practices and making sacrifices to realize your dreams is all worth it. And third, she provided lots of sound advice to aspiring entrepreneurs. For instance, if you have the entrepreneurial spirit, embrace it. Reach out to people who can provide mentorship and show you the way. Be bold. Follow your instincts. Recognize that your business will go through maturation periods just like people, and don't listen to the naysayers. Today's episode was written, researched, and hosted by me, Claire Vincent, with technical production provided by DJ Stunyars and music from Caleb Justinger you can find House Call on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. If you'd like to listen to House Call from Affinity Strategies' website, go to www.affinity-strategies.com. Be sure to follow our series to stay up to date on new episodes. Share it with your friends. And if you enjoy what you're hearing, kindly give us a like. This helps us get the word out about our series. You can expect a new episode to drop sometime during the third week of each month. Thank you so much for listening to House Call, an Affinity Strategies podcast. We appreciate you so, so much. I look forward to catching up with you again in just a few weeks. Thank you for listening. This is Clever Vincent.